In this episode of The Historians, the topic is railroad history. And our guest is Jim Backors of the Bridgeline Historical Society that primarily works to preserve the history of the Delaware and Hudson Railroad. Hello, Jim. Yes, sir. Jim, you've been an active rail fan, you tell me, since the early 1970s and a sometimes rail fan for about a dozen years more. What is a rail fan? Well, it's it's a, a it's kind of like a baseball fan, only we don't look at baseball pitches. We look at the trains going by and the historical facilities, uh, the equipment, the people. And I'm more of a people-type person on that, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of people out there who just want to look at locomotives and things, and everyone's got their thing. That's, that's what ours is. I wander around the country looking for railroad stuff. Now, if you get it, and I and I really do, because I enjoy uh, trains as well. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say I'm an official rail fan, but for, for you, how did you get interested in this? Ah, that's one thing I've always kind of been mystified about. Though it's become a little clearer, it, it turns out my grandfather was a uh, was a fireman on on a a very local railroad in Hoosick Falls. It was the Walter A. Wood Machinery Works uh, mm-hmm. Railroad. There was a that was a huge uh, agricultural implement manufacturer at the time, biggest in the world, and uh, they had their own railroad. And apparently, it sort of got in the genes somewhere in there, and it. It came back alive when I got married, and, uh, well, keep going, you know. All right. Now, you also told me you became very active taking pictures of railroad sites in the 1980s and 90s because your job took you on the road. Can you tell us just a little bit about your job? I gather it's rather technical, and but well, also uh, what you did on the road taking pictures of trains. Well, it, it was one thing that I, when I was on the road all those years, and it, and it was probably about 15, 20 years where I was working for a company out of Tennessee, and we made test and measurement equipment, both gamma and x-ray. So there was a lot of uh, places around the country where they test gamma rays, well, mostly nuclear power plants and research institutions, but x-rays are used for material analysis. In other words, we can. it was a, a procedure which you bombard a sample with x-rays, non-destructive mm-hmm. testing, and it would give off a, a, a signature of what was in it. And you had to analyze it for accuracy. It was typically a part per million accuracy. Very mm-hmm. interesting stuff. But since that stuff was all over the country, from semiconductor plants to people to make disk drives or hard drives uh, to coal mines to... Well, just about anything, research institutions, they were everywhere. And, they, and I was put on the road pretty heavily for a while, which was fine with me. Uh, I, I love that part of the, tr- of the challenge. You know, you, you're sort of like the lone ranger. You come riding in to fix their problems for them. Mm-hmm. Of course, sometimes you got a few arrows in your back. <laughs> okay. But, but there, when I was traveling so much, I had to find something to do if I was stuck in a town overnight or two, three days waiting for parts, which could happen. It was an unusual part. Uh, and I'd rather than go to the local bar to see if I can destroy my liver, I find there's got to be something better I can do with my life. And it was the camera. that was, I was in the photography since I was a kid. And that was, of course, or you might say it would save me. Yeah, and that's something. I think I'd have been more tempted by the bar than you were. But uh, uh, but so you took these pictures of trains, and that became your hobby. And the, and the rest, maybe we could say, is history. So let's talk a little bit about the a railroad that you focus on and your uh, publication 
and society focus on, the Bridgeline Historical Society. Right. It's the Delaware and Hudson a railroad, or maybe it's more typically railway. Is it right. one way or the other? Well, it's gone back and forth between railway and railroad, but originally it was the Canal Delaware and Hudson Canal Company, originally. Mm -hmm. and, and that goes uh, all the way back to 1823? And it's in the usual case, it was 1823 is when they started the company. That was to bring coal to New York City. But you would think that it was coming out of Carbondale, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, that area, that the obvious plan would be head due east. Well, there's a problem with mountains in the way if you do that. So what they did do is build what they call a gravity railroad, which is you uh, using planes and uh, gravity winch and winches and using gravity to go down the slope to bring the cars over to the uh, Delaware River, then across that and up to Kingston. And from mm -hmm. there, they barged it down to New York City, which mm -hmm. is the big market. But as time went on, they expanded into railroads yeah. in the great Well, they era. tried railroads immediately, but they soon realized that the railroads of the day were just not up to the task of hauling coal, because coal was just too big and too heavy. I mean, the first pictures, well, there's no real pictures of it, but the depictions of the original trestles uh, that they used uh, with the engine to to, to pull the coal carts across. They look really spindly and wobbly. I mean, it must have swayed in the breeze if you were up there with the <laughs> locomotive. And they realized this wasn't going to work, so they had to abandon the railroad idea temporarily and then come back to it later on. Mm -hmm. And the Delaware and Hudson, in its uh, heyday, if you will, uh, called itself the Bridge Line. Uh, and Correct. their society's called the Bridge Line Historical Society. What, is, what does that mean? Well, the idea of, of the railroad was to bridge it from one area, was from the bridge traffic, if you will, from one spot to another that really was not covered by the major railroads. There were no railroads that really went out of Pennsylvania and went to our area except for the Delaware and Hudson. It was the only one that did. And there was a big market in New England and a big market in Pennsylvania, and that was really the only railroad that bridged them directly. Mm-hmm. It also uh, put a bridge in, if you will, or a railroad bridge, or, I mean, went to uh, Canada, did it not? Yes, it did. It went all the way up Lake Champlain, which is a beautiful ride, which everyone should at least take once in their life up along Lake Champlain, uh, all the way to Montreal. Well, actually, it stopped at the border, and they had a Canadian subsidiary called the Naperville Junction, which brought them up to connect with the Canadian Pacific to bring it into Montreal. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful ride along Lake, and you can still ride today on Amtrak. Delaware and Hudson uh, kind of follows this path of many uh, railroads that are really old. Uh, it you know grew and grew and but then at some point it it declined. Uh, does the Delaware and Hudson still exist? Yeah, well, in in parts it does. The corporate name still exists. It's part of uh, Canadian Pacific Railway. In fact, it's the oldest continuously operated transportation company in the U.S. There's nothing older. Mm -hmm. And at one time, the, the, the combination of the coal mining they did and the railroads made them the seventh or eighth largest corporation in the country. Hmm. Here in upstate New York, I mean, they served a number of, of cities. Um, I, mean, I hope I don't get one wrong, like Binghamton, Oneonta, uh, up to uh, Albany, and then uh, up, the, as you indicated, up to Lake Champlain Way toward Canada and more to the east toward uh, New England. 
Um, it, so it had quite a presence in our area. And you can still ride it if you wish. And, and not only does Amtrak run over the DNH, a traditional DNH line north out of Albany, the Rensselaer and Saratoga and other rail lines, uh, the the line that goes from uh, Saratoga Springs to North Creek is an is an ex DNH line. It's a nice little line up there. You can ride that, and there's, there's trains running on that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, snow trains they run on some weekends. It's uh, quite interesting. The the line over from Whitehall to shall we say, well Rutland in effect. It was bought by a different railroad over in that area, but by Oh, ten years ago, I guess would have been. That that's still in operation, and there's still passenger trains on that one. So the railroad is uh, what's left of it has a fair amount of little passenger traffic over, which is unusual for a well, not a huge railroad. Mm-hmm. When was the historical society formed, and, and what does the group do? The society was formed just before CP Rail or Canadian Pacific bought the group bought the D&H in 1990. We, our, our job is to, say, preserve the history of the D&H, and we've done a pretty fair job of that, being officially recognized by the, the CP, uh, Canadian Pacific, and others as the, the railroad society for that group. Uh, we were early on more technically inclined than some others. We were the first group of its type to put a, a website up way back when. Mm. And... What? How do you try to preserve uh, the history of the DNA? Or what tools do you use for that? Well, we do a lot of electronic work. We 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 try to collect photographs and documents. Documents, and we do. We scan what we can of them, uh, electronically scan them, and we also uh, have an official archive at the State University of New York, Albany. They're the official archives. We've been bringing material over to them. We have much more material to bring over to them. In fact, I would like to get some of it out of my basement. You know how that works, I'm sure. <laughs> right. um, also, or you put out a uh, newsletter. The Society's, uh, it's called The Bulletin. Uh, and in fact, you have an official role with that. And so does your wife, who I don't, I don't believe is a really a rail fan. But what, what are your, your jobs there? Well... Well, she's a rail fan. I don't think she wants to admit it. There are some people who say, oh, no, I'm not one of these uh, crazy rail fans that goes out and looks at trains, but she likes looking at trains. And and today, as a matter of fact, she thought we were going to go over to your studio and afterwards you can go out looking at trains. That was her idea. So, <laughs> But the whole thing is that, that we uh, I, I'm the publisher and she's the editor. We put out this newsletter of about, oh, 44 to 50 pages a month, which is Considering there's no ads in it, it's a pretty hefty little publication. Yeah, I would say. I mean, I've enjoyed reading it for years and, and years. And, and uh, you, the Society's been in existence about 25 years? And Since how about 1990. The, how about, Actually, uh, the fall of 89, technically. What about the bulletin? It's existed for the same it amount of time? It started up almost immediately. Our first issue was in 1990. Uh, the issues are countered from 91 because before, nine, before 91, we only had one official issue out, and they call it Issue Zero, which doesn't <laughs> sort of a, a little bit of a chuckle on it. But we've been publishing continuously, and they haven't missed any issues since, uh, since then. Yeah, and I think I said that, uh, you know, what are your jobs with the bulletin? But, I mean, you don't get paid. I mean, this is volunteer work. Oh, no, this is a historical society. It's strictly a volunteer thing. I probably put a fair amount of hours into it every week. I know Barbara does 
Right now, she's proofing the material for the next issue. She'll be running on that three, four days solid, just proofing the material and get it right. She's very, very good at proofing. She was a legal secretary in the state Senate. That's right. I remember that. Now, uh, and again, I personally enjoy the bulletin. I mean, it's a great um, it's, a, it's a great publication as far as uh, I'm concerned. Um, and I, I'm just amazed that you're able to put it together the way that, that you do. I mean, that you, you, you get it out there. Yes, considering the fact we're using a very antiquated word processing system called WordPerfect 5.1, which some lawyers back from the 80s would know about that program, which was DOS-based way before Windows even came out. And we're still using that, and it's amazing that how flexible and how powerful they made that little program. So we're still using it to this day. Which but you like have interesting on, stuff in it. You know, uh, for example, you have a lot of pictures of trains. I mean, they're they're generally it's in black and white, but you have some. Uh, you always have uh, great pictures of uh, of trains. Not always uh, Delaware and Hudson, but uh, I would say a good part of the time. Yes, we do that. Because, well, there's the thing is that the DH Railroad did not live in a vacuum. They had to interact with other railroads around it to get traffic and bring what they call interchange system to, uh, say, the New York Central or the Boston and Maine, which was the traditional partner, and others. And all of these were interchanged. It didn't live and stand all by itself away from the world. It had to work with others. So, therefore, we have this sort of uh, imperative, shall you say, maybe, uh, to work to show some of these other railroads and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. In fact, and you have some interesting columns, and I've told you this before, my favorite is... Um, a reverend of some years, uh, a minister from yes. the North Country, Reverend Walter Smith. I just love Walter his Smith, columns. Yes. I love the way he, he writes. And it's, again, this gets back to this idea of being a rail fan. I mean, he oh. obviously has a, a day job, and it's a very serious kind of job in a way. Or I mean, he's a, he's a pastor, and he talks about visiting hospitals and doing funerals and, and this and that. But his father apparently worked for a railroad, and that's where the reverend got his uh, his rail fan bug. And whatever chance he gets, he goes out and takes pictures of trains and watches trains wherever he happens to be. Yes, he's quite a good photographer. He and his brother, uh, who is who doesn't again does not want to admit being a full fledged rail fan, but gee, they are not unusual. It's like my wife. Mm-hmm. They. Uh, some people enjoy riding the trains. Some people enjoy uh, just watching them go by. I, I, For instance, there was a gentleman that used to be on our board until he unfortunately passed away a few years ago, and Frank Doherty. And he was a conductor for the New York Central Railroad, which is, as you know, is, is long gone. But he and I at one time went to a trip in the, the Mojave Desert area of the, the U.S., and he just loved to stand there and watch those trains go by. It's Santa Fe, a fine railroad. Not as good as the New York Central, but it was a fine railroad. And we're watching their trains. Yeah. Well, reading again, reading the, the Reverend uh, Walter Smith, he's been down, at, as maybe you have, down to, I can't think of the name of it. It's some southern city where all the trains pass through on their way to Florida and, and beyond. Uh, yes. That would probably... I can't remember the town, name of the town right now. It's right at the southern border of Georgia. where It's a place they call the Funnel, where a lot of the lines come together to get into, into Florida. Is that area, it's right by the Okefenokee Swamp. And there's very okay. few areas you can get across that swamp that have solid land. You, I mean, you can add all the, the, the rocks and 
dirt and ballast you want, but it's going to sink in the swamp in all but a few places. Mm-hmm. So this one, it, it, I believe it's Folkestone, Georgia, where all the tracks come together, and the town has built a covered platform. You can just sit there on a bench and watch the trains go by right in front of you. It's it's uh, the, the rail fan phenomenon is bigger down south. I mean, there's probably a dozen they call viewing platforms like that down south. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've I've seen them as far west as Texas, uh, out in Rochelle, Illinois. It's a fine spot. The town has built one there. Uh, other things that so that people can it's a tourist attraction. Yeah. You bring people well, in, they watch know... the trains, and you try to cater to the people. Why not? It's it's a perfectly good, legitimate business. I know that in my hometown of Amsterdam that I write about a lot, uh, the the main line of CSX, who used to be the New York Central, goes goes right th- right through, and that causes some grief to uh, many of the inhabitants who don't like all the whistles blowing, but uh, that's a long story in itself because of uh, train accidents that have happened over the years. But the tourist uh, promotion folks in the Mohawk Valley say that people, sometimes, you know, tourists do come there. They just station themselves. There's this one bridge that goes to a, the what they call Riverlink Park on the Mohawk River where you can see the trains, photograph the trains, and uh, it's become a little... Uh, destination for some rail fans. Yes, it's it's a, a thing. It. Um, my wife is again one of those type of people that likes to go out and watch the trains. But if she can sit in a park and with a river in front of her, with a boat going by, which in this case the Erie Canal, right in front of you, sometimes you see trains going by in the forest. Or she's just happy as all get out. She just loves that. <laughs> and uh, she's not the only one. There are thousands of people out there who are what we call rail fans, rail enthusiasts. We're all over the country, and it's amazing. And I've been, you know, as I, you mentioned earlier, I traveled so much for so many years, and I, I there there wasn't a single state I didn't hit on business. Therefore, there's quite a few places that I would, you know, take pictures in. And I would get back a roll from because I always took slides, and I would get the pictures back, and that's that might have five or six different states on the same roll of film. Back to the uh, Delaware and Hudson, we're talking with Jim Backhorse of the Bridgeline Historical Society. In its heyday, the DNH was based in Albany, and it had a beautiful building as its headquarters. The building still exists in downtown uh, Albany. Uh, I worked there for a while because after 1977, the State University took it over, and I, uh, in fact, I worked in the Middle Tower, the what the, un- the university they used to call the power tower um, but um, th- that's quite a remarkable structure uh, it is that, that was built well i know it was well before 1923 because i have a photo of it in 1920 no i believe it was completed in 1918 i don't mean to upstage you but i you know look some stuff up because i used to have to not have well i guess i did have to it's my job i used to have to give tours of it it was designed by a man named marcus reynolds right it's a beautiful building it is a copy of a the Cloth Guild Hall in Ypres, Belgium. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Ypres, Y-P-R-E-S, but they actually copied the Cloth, the cloth Guild Hall as their model. And the building in Belgium got almost destroyed during World War II. They came back over here to look at the architectural features of that building in Albany, which some people, by the way, mistake as the state capital. It looks yes, so nice. it is. It's so striking that people think it is the state capital. And... Uh, and the other, or you know, one of the other points we'd always put on the tours of it, it's uh, not—it's five stories high, I believe, and 
it's most of it. And then the middle tower, I think, is 13. And the, there's another tower that's six or seven. But it's a rather narrow building. And supposedly it was in part put up by the railroad for some public relations because the citizens of Albany or the politicians of Albany or the merchants didn't like the view that they saw before they built this building. This building blocks the view of the railroad tracks and all the things that, uh, you know, went with uh, that kind of uh, operation back in the uh, early 20th century. It's a beautiful building, and in front of the track, if you've seen some of the older photos, there was trolley tracks, there was a turning circle around uh, the area right in front of the building where the trolleys turned. They went north, they went south, they went west up the hill. Though I'm not quite sure how a trolley got up that hill, but it, it must have because they did go out that way. Yeah, and also in the building, it doesn't have to do with railroad history, but... Uh, it was the home of Billy Barnes, the Republican political boss, before uh, Dan O'Connell, uh, Erasmus Corning, and the Democrats came to power. He had a newspaper, and I believe that the newspaper offices were on the first floor, and he lived above it, but um, that yeah, also that was in the, in the be, building that the Marcus North Reynolds designed. I think it was called the Albany Journal. Yes, I think it was the Albany Journal. Right. Uh, that The North Tower was, I think, it was designed to match the rest, and it was built sort of integral with the entire project. Hmm. And on that um, first floor, there were different railroad offices from from many, many railroads around the country. Uh, there were just small rooms where you know, New York Central would be here, the Union Pacific would be there, and you'd have the Western Pacific and uh, some smaller railroads, as other ones from around the country, the bigger railroads, the Missouri, Kansas, Texas. They would all have an office in the at building. It was sort of like going down the hall and you could look at the roster of American railroads. Yeah. And also another, I don't know if it was a, really a confusion, but you said some, some people today think of that uh, building, the SUNY uh, uh, administrative building that was the Delaware and Hudson building as the state capital, but also it's not the train station. <laughs> I mean, the train station somewhere else. Is next door. But right. behind the area be between the two buildings, there was a big freight freight complex at one time. There was probably 20 tracks wide. Uh, the, and there was behind that uh, a, a yacht basin, which is long gone. Mm. It's a, yep. it was quite an interesting downtown. It was uh, a lot of swamp to north of that, unfortunately. The old, that's because a lot of that was the old turning basin. It was the end of the Erie Canal right there. Mm -hmm. Now, the... I, I, again, enjoy the stories in the bulletin that you get from history. Sometimes you reprint things that uh, executives or engineers or foremen and or whoever have written in the past or uh, who are maybe some still surviving and they write about uh, what, what they have seen. But one name I saw, and I saw it in connection with this building, that was, apparently was one of the big uh, poobahs of the Delaware and Hudson over the years, Leonor... Lori, is that his Leonor name? Leonor Lori, the, the, the famous Leonor, was a very, uh, shall we say, conservative businessman. He thought that a railroad was a wonderful thing. He kept the, the d one of the biggest corporations in the country until the transcontinental railroads were built. It was a very powerful railroad, and Leonor Lurie was such a power that he was just everywhere, shall we say. He was just the railroad. If you talked about Leonore Lurie, it was the railroad man. He he would travel around the country doing speeches. He was one of the biggest luminaries in the country as far as railroad business was concerned. Mm. 
And this, one of the themes that we've been discussing is the, the idea of being a rail fan, going out and taking pictures, watching trains. That's been in the news uh, recently. Of course, maybe the, they're making a bit much of it, but I mean, it's tragic. People uh, go to train, um, you know, to, to railroad property, and they get hurt or they get killed. What is the yeah. relationship between rail fans and the people that operate the railroads? Well. The most of the rail fans that I know, at least the ones I consider the legitimate rail fans, if you want to call it that, they are really concerned about safety and the history of the railroad. If they see someone trespassing, and, and that is where most of the deaths on the railroad come from, people dying on the tracks have been trespassing, uh, they will report it to the railroad police. We're sort of like their auxiliary police units in some ways, even though traditionally the railroads don't always look at us that way. But there are groups that, like the Bella, the uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway has a group for their, they'll give you an identification card. So they're, if you have to contact their police, you'll say, oh, he's one of the good guys. And, well, you know, we, we do things like that. We try to keep the railroad safe. It, no one wants to get anyone injured in the railroad. It's a dangerous enough business without walking out in the middle of a right in front of a train. Another uh, intersection, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, between the Delaware and Hudson in its uh, days of steam and, and into the days of uh, diesel, um, and even up to, to, well, not up to today, obviously, but uh, what I'm driving at is it seems that D&H used a lot of uh, locomotives manufactured at the American locomotive plant uh, in Schenectady. Yes, they did. Uh Interesting enough, if whether if there was a railroad that had the cost that had as one of its customers uh, a major locomotive plant like in Lima, excuse me, Lima, Ohio, uh, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the Baldwin works, well, the railroads that touched that company tended to buy more from that one because it was one of their customers, part of it. Plus, they had a little more influence that way. Now, the D&H, of course, with the uh, all with the Alco works in Schenectady. Uh, I, I'm not sure offhand how many other works of that railroad they touched. I would say there was two in New Jersey. There was New Hampshire. There was Rhode Island. There was Pittsburgh and Richmond, Virginia. The only one they touched was was Schenectady, but it, it was the biggest one of the group. It was the founding. Uh, Schenectady Local Mocha Woodworks Works uh, was the founding of the of the Alco plant. Since our uh, talk is really, you know, kind of centered on the idea of being a rail fan, being interested in railroad history, how's that going these days? I mean, uh, young kids don't have, not very many young kids have model trains anymore, things like that. Is this, uh, you know, what's the health of this hobby? What's interesting is that it actually is reviving somewhat because a lot of kids out there, like to take pictures, as you know, cell phones ubiquitous with a camera in it, and they can take video. There are sites you can go to on the web where there are dozens of videos posted by kids every day of, of trains. It's just amazing how you don't see them so much contributing to the the uh, the press like us, mm -hmm. but they do go out there and they do take pictures and they do post them on the web. And there's thousands of videos available out there, short ones, long ones. Some of them kind of funny, but mm -hmm. you know, they post them. <laughs> so they're trains on YouTube is what you're yes, saying. Yes, there are. YouTube, Facebook, and other sites that are meant just for that. That's Jim Backors. He's with the Bridgeline Historical Society and their great publication, 
the Bulletin of the Bridgeline Historical Society. Lots of information about the Delaware and Hudson Railroad history, uh, pictures of trains, interesting columns uh, written by rail fans, news about uh, the railroad industry, and so on and so forth. If you're interested in uh, getting a free sample copy, uh, you can write to the Bridgeline, Box 13324 in Albany, 12212. That's Box 13324, Albany, 12212. You've been listening to The Historians. Our program is recorded at the Command Central Studios of Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudborn.